Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we bring on Dr. Lat Mansour to talk all about the benefits of endogenous and exogenous ketones. What about homeostasis? So, as Ben said, we talked briefly offline about how this is essentially what life is all about. It's about giving yourself the challenge, certain challenge. You adapt to the challenge. You learn from the challenge, and then you grow. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you for pressing play today. You can learn more about me over at benazadi.com. Today, we bring on lead researcher and scientist, Dr. Lat Mansour who is working with HVMN, Health Via Modern Nutrition. And we geeked out on this episode. You are going to love this if you are curious about how ketones work endogenously, exogenously. We discuss mitochondrial coupling, which is the process of the mitochondria protecting themselves to mitigate reactive oxygen species and produce more energy. Now, I asked him the question, I know this happens when you are in ketosis, but can this also happen when you are taking exogenous ketones? You'll have to wait to hear his answer. We get into a couple of published papers that he has put out with Jeffrey Wu regarding traumatic brain injuries and also using exogenous ketones for endurance and recovery and performance with fitness. You're going to hear a story growing up with a family who has type 2 diabetes and why that inspired him to study this metabolic disease and some of the things he has learned when it comes to diabetes. We get into several topics regarding ketones, including the right way and the wrong way to use exogenous ketones. We actually take the HVMN ketone IQ right at the beginning of the show. We take it together to really improve brain performance and have a great conversation for you all. We get into the role of ketones for suppressing appetite. We get into leptin and ghrelin and cholecystokinin and what happens and why ketones could be great for preventing you from overeating. We get into the benefits of ketones for cognitive health. You're going to love that part because so many people struggle with brain fog and also there's an epidemic of Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative disorders and ketones could be a valuable asset and tool to prevent these conditions. If you remember, we brought on Michael Brent, who is the co-founder of HVMN a couple months ago, episode 398, where we really dove deep into exogenous ketones for the first time on this show. And a couple of years ago, we brought on Jeffrey Rue, who was also the co-founder of HVMN, to talk about his biohacking experiments, fasted workouts, and other things he's been doing. So you can listen to that episode 108 and episode 398 after you listen to this episode with Dr. Lat. You're going to love this conversation. We had a lot of fun. The video version of this interview could be found on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash ketocamp if you want to watch that after you listen to it today. Before I bring on Dr. Lat, I want to take a minute to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from Moki titled, So Informative. Probably one of my favorite podcasts. I just keep learning new things every day. I highly recommend this show to all interested in keto and intermittent fasting lifestyle. Thank you so much, Moki. I'm so glad 
this is your favorite or one of your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening and for taking the time to leave that rating and review, which makes a big difference for the show to reach more people. So I am so grateful you did that. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or a review yet on Apple Podcast or whatever podcast platform you're listening from right now, please pause this real quick and leave that rating and review. It makes a big, big difference for the show. Before I bring on Dr. Lat, I want to remind you, you could get any of the products mentioned, including several other products we didn't even mention from HVMN over at hvmn.me slash ketocamp. And we have a nice 10% coupon code for you, which is ketocamp at checkout. We'll drop those links down below. Without further ado, let's geek out together with Dr. Lat Mansour. Dr. Lat Mansour holds a PhD in physiology anatomy, and genetics from the University of Oxford, where his research focused on the metabolism of type 2 diabetic heart in hypoxia, which he's going to talk about today. Super fascinating. He also holds an MA from Columbia University, a BS, Hans University of Nottingham in biotechnology. He's a world expert in physiology and metabolism and consults with elite sport, military, clinical, and research organizations. Here is Dr. Lat Mansour. I'm here with Lat Manser, lead researcher at HVMN, Health via Modern Nutrition. Lat, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, man. So I've had your colleagues on the show before. Uh, Michael Brandt was on episode 398. That was actually the first episode where I wanted to actually dive deep into exogenous ketones and share the right usage for it how it doesn't substitute doing the work. And it was a great episode. That was with Michael. He was awesome. And then Jeffrey came on a couple years ago, episode 108. And now I'm excited to chat more about the research and to geek out with you. So thanks for joining me today, Lat. Pleasure is mine. I'm, I'm happy to carry on the HVMN legacy on Ben Azadi's podcast. <laughs> We're going to have fun. So let's before we get into the research, actually, let's take a shot together so we can get really focused. And we're taking a shot, for those who are not watching on YouTube, we're taking a shot of Ketone IQ. What do you suggest? How much should I take, Lat? Um, I usually take 45 mils. Um, I'm going to do standard, 30. Standard, yeah, standard, standard recommended dose is about 35 mils, which has 10 grams of RN3-butindiol, which gets converted into beta-hydroxybutyrate by your liver. Okay, 35 ml is what I'm doing. So let's cheers, brother. Cheers. Boom. Take a shot. Oh, yeah. Now we got the BHB running through our veins, and we're going to really geek out. So cheers. Within 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 minutes. <laughs> we'll get more into uh, exogenous ketones. So if you didn't listen to the episode I did with Michael, we'll uh, dive deep into that and some other uses that we didn't talk about with Michael. So stay tuned. But before we get there... Lad, I want to talk about your story. You know, how did you even get involved with studying nutrition and ketones and diabetes and cognitive health? What was the transition? How did that transpire for you? Oh gosh, I'm. Um, I don't know if you have time for this. You know, it's like two decades worth of <laughs> worth of my journey. I think my interest definitely came from growing up in a family with really high prevalence of diabetes. So my mother's side has very high prevalence of obesity and diabetes. And my late father passed away from stroke. And a few years before that, he had an open heart surgery because of a myocardial infarction or heart attack. And my half-brother, unfortunately, passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 45 from a heart attack as well. So knowing those two strong chronic disease prevalence in my family sort of taught me that okay, um, is there anything I can do? So growing up, I was also overweight, thinking that that's my path. That is my destination where I'm heading towards and there's nothing I can change about it. And then while I was doing my undergrad in University of Nottingham in the UK in biotechnology, I learned more about physiology, metabolism. And in fact, my final year project was mathematical modeling of adipose tissue metabolism. So essentially looking at a mathematical model of how fat is being metabolized. And that was also when I started exercising and actually enjoying exercising for, for the first time ever in my life. So that was quite a revelation. And I started losing weight. I started you know, seeing all these different changes physiologically and physically that I've never seen ever in my life. And, and that was when I also realized that actually with all this knowledge, 
there are things that I can do to make my life healthier, to change my lifestyle so that I am not subjected to the predisposition that the, my genetics is telling me um, that I'm going to get, you know, all these diseases. So fast forward a couple of years, you know, I did my master's and then I ended up in a pharmaceutical company working on critical care pathway, specifically in cardiovascular medicine. And then I started my PhD at University of Oxford in physiology, anatomy, and genetics, specifically looking at metabolism of type 2 diabetic heart in hypoxia. So that is when I studied the metabolic inflexibility in diabetic heart, but also studying what's the difference between glycolytic rates or glucose metabolism and fatty acid metabolism in a normal heart versus a diabetic heart. And then on top of that, if I add on hypoxia, which is low oxygen environment, what kind of difference does that make? Yeah. And and I mean, share with us what you found. I mean, you can't just leave us on that cliffhanger. Like what were the, find, the major findings with that? So what we used were type 2 diabetic rats. Um, so rat models here. And what we have found because of the diabetic model that we generated, we generated using high fat diet and a drug called streptozotocin or SDZ. Uh, that drug essentially kills off pancreatic beta cells. And if you dose it too much, it will kill all of the pancreatic beta cells, but then that would be type 1 diabetes. So I had to do a dose response study so that I get the right amount so that it still produces insulin, but it's sort of almost forcing it to a compensatory overload of insulin production coupled with the high-fat diet to get the insulin resistance so that I get a sort of mid to late stage um, type 2 diabetic model. What we have seen is that because of the high fat diet as well, the heart, I'm talking about the heart specifically here, um, the heart in a normal rat, preferably, it prefers to use fatty acid for oxygen. Okay. However, when you are in a situation where you have low oxygen, either in hypoxia or ischemia. Ischemia means um, you have a restricted blood flow into your heart, and that's the, the beginning of a myocardial infarction of a heart attack. When that happens, the heart will switch over to increase glucose metabolism, specifically glycolysis, because glycolysis is oxygen independent. It's a way to generate ATP or energy so that your heart can st still keep pumping without the presence of, presence of oxygen. Now, granted, the energy created or generated via glycolysis is not as much as the whole um, you know, uh, respiration pathway or oxidative phosphorylation can generate, but it will do during that short amount of time to mitigate the damage uh, coming from hypoxia. What we have seen in the diabetic heart is that glycolytic rates did not go up as high. It's significantly lower than a normal heart, but the fatty acid oxidation remains high. So it's, that's where we say it's inflexible because it's not flexible enough to switch substrates. Because heart, like, for example, brain, those two organs are very flexible organs because they know that they have to operate 24-7 ever since we're born until the day we, we die. It needs to keep operating. So therefore, they have evolved or we have evolved to have these organs as omnivores its ability to generate energy and ATP from any substrates that's provided to them, whether it's fat, whether it's glucose, whether it's ketones, lactate, they can use it and generate energy. So it, it's almost super, super essential that it, it can switch over to whatever substrate that fits the condition at the moment uh, in order to prioritize survivability. But in my study, in my thesis, in my research, we saw the metabolic inflexibility in the diabetic heart. And that is also coupled with a decrease in cardiac function. So the hypoxic environment in the diabetic heart creates a more detrimental condition or detrimental environment for the heart. It has a higher chance or higher risk of developing either heart failure or arrhythmia. So that's what we observed. And that sort of translates into what we have seen in clinical settings where diabetic patients have a much higher risk of getting heart failure, even if they 
survive a heart attack. So, you know, because as you increase oxidation of fatty acid, in the absence of oxygen, you are creating a lot of free radical, you're creating a lot of reactive oxygen species. And, you know, all that damage being done increases risk of, of the heart failure. Fascinating. And, you know, and it makes sense why we see so many people who have type 2 diabetes who end up with neuropathy, strokes, kidney failure, amputations. And, and I always say it's not really the diabetes that are killing people. It's what the diabetes leads to, the degeneration of it. Like my dad as well um, suffered a massive stroke from his diabetes and ended up dying nine months after the stroke. It's, it's what happens as a result of the diabetes. But even before that, lad, as you know, it's what happened the pro previous 10 to 15 years because that is something that develops over several years and the doctor might be, or you might even checking your glucose, but you might be developing insulin resistance along the way that's really keeping the glucose optimal or in range. And this whole time you're developing insulin resistance, which leads to type diabetes. And I read a stat that every 10 seconds, somebody dies from the complications of diabetes in the world. And I remember you sharing a stat that every 30 seconds, a leg is amputated as a result of uh, type two diabetes. Right. So explain, these complications that we're seeing, uh, the root cause, if you will, not even the complications, you just explained the complications, but what are the root causes? Why is this happening? Why are 88% of American adults metabolically inflexible? I think most importantly, and you point to a really great point as well, in the sense that, you know, even if you check your glucose continuously, you know, over years, and it's still within the range. Now, even if you're one point below the diabetic, threshold, you are still clinically considered, you know, either pre-diabetic or, you know, sort of healthy and you don't need to go on, on medication. But that is a, a red flag, essentially, because as you said, you could overcompensate that already because insulin resistance already occur and you are overcompensating by increasing the production of insulin. At that point, your pancreatic beta cells are already stressed out to create more insulin. And it's just a matter of time before it shuts down from overproduction of insulin to uh, cope with the demand of high glucose levels given the insulin uh, resistance. So that's that's that uh, I wanted to point out. And then in terms of you know why it causes all these different comorbidities, this this risk and this complications and whatnot. I think it has a lot to do with the increased glucose content. I think nephropathy, um, the kidney, you know, being the the filtration you know, system of the body, you know, when you have such imbalance in your blood with the osmotic imbalance, the glucose imbalance, the, the ionic imbalance, it does affect it. And I think the nerves also has higher risk of getting damage when there is a constant increase elevated um, glucose in the blood as well. And then obviously with all the, the imbalance that's going on, it will also trigger a secondary effect, which is, you know, all the chronic inflammation that comes because your body knows something is wrong. It's trying to fix it by, for example, you know, pancreatic beta cells um, secreting more insulin than, than it usually, usually does. Your other parts of body and trying to fix things, you know, balance things. And, and that's one thing I, I tell people about metabolism. It's all about balance. It's all about moderation, not too much, not too, too little. It's the Goldilocks zone. If you think about it, every enzyme has a specific temperature range at which it's optimal. Right, So it's the same for all biological pathways where it needs to be in the optimal condition in order to give the optimal effect. So in that sense, when you are activating your inflammation or inflammatory system chronically, just switch it on continuously, they're bound to have some sort of side effects that comes from it, that negativity, negative effects that comes of it. And that is where you know we attribute a lot of these chronic diseases to you know, chronic inflammation to diabetes to even Alzheimer's to a certain point, certain extent, and the increased risk. Obviously, with diabetes, you have like obesity, you have cardiovascular disease, you have hypertension that usually are in tandem with each other and together increase the risk of mortality. Well said and well explained. And, you know, something that I think is important for the audience to understand. And first of all, this is not medical advice. This is just our opinion. Uh, it shouldn't substitute any medical advice. But here's what I've seen. 
Type 2 diabetes is fairly easy to prevent and fairly easy to reverse in most cases. Not everybody is the same. There's always outliers. Type 2, not type 1. And, you know, it's just amazing. The body could adapt. The body could recover. The body could repair. We just got to remove the interference. So when you explained what's happening with the blood vessels getting tight and lack of oxygen and the kidneys getting damaged and also diabetic neuropathy with the, the nerve endings and losing their eyesight, all those problems that occur from the complications of type 2 diabetes, that can be reversed and prevented. And, and the human body, like you said, has this Goldilocks effect. And we were just talking offline a little bit about it. It's called hormesis. We've spoken a lot about hormesis here on this a podcast, but the analogy that I'll give, and then I want you to dive deeper into hormesis, the analogy that I'll give with hormesis or the example is exercise, right? You go and you work out for the first time, you apply a stressor, you do some curls, you do some squats, it's a stressor to your body. You sleep, you recover, you grow back stronger. That's a good form of hormesis. It's a good stress. You do too much exercise and too much for your body to adapt to, that curve goes down, you lose the benefits, you could hurt yourself. So could you dive deeper into this process of hormesis, number one? And number two, how do we find our unique Goldilocks effect and golden zone for hormesis? And the second question is a much harder question. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the first question about how, you know, what about hormesis? So as Ben said, we talked briefly offline about how this is essentially what life is all about. It's about giving yourself the challenge, certain challenge, you adapt to the challenge, you learn from the challenge, and then you grow. So next time you face the same challenge, you can tackle it in a much more efficient way, and you can potentially grow even further. And then you can up the challenge. So that's, that's what, you know, look at it as a, like a video game, right? You go level one, you learn how to beat level one, now you're ready for level two, right? So it's the same here in this process where you know, let's take COVID-19, right? Very relevant these days. You get exposed to COVID-19, you survive COVID-19, you build antibody, and then you get exposed again to COVID-19, your symptoms hopefully will be less severe, right? This is essentially the fundamental idea around homesis. If you're talking about mitochondrial homesis, is, you know, for increasing in antioxidant in response to increase in reactive oxygen species in response to increase in free radical, right? If you increase the free radicals and reactive oxygen species to a certain extent, you are telling your cells, you're telling your mitochondria to release enough antioxidant to deal with that, right? Glutathione, melatonin and whatnot. And having antioxidant is a good thing, right? To generate antioxidant in general is a good thing. So you know, your body knows how to generate that and generate that in, in the right amount. It's good for your body. But then obviously, if you overwhelm the system by inducing a lot more ROS, reactive oxygen species, then obviously that's not good for you. So that's why I said it's about balance and moderation. You know, give the right amount of challenge and overcoming that challenge will prove yourself stronger. And I apply that to pretty much everything I do in life and as well as in my studies, as well as my research. I believe in that wholeheartedly. And then the second question was, how do we find the Goldilocks zone? I think that for me, as I can, I can at least just speak for myself, is it's through the trial and error approach. I, let's say, work out weightlifting, for example. What is the weight that I can do without breaking my back? Push myself, go through that, recover, come back the next day, do the same weight a little bit more, see if I can do that. If I feel comfortable, stick with that weight. Let your body also, that's another point, right? Your body will adapt. But I think these days, because of social media and, and the perception of time is warped for most people because people want instant gratification. People want instant change. They, they want everything at the tip of the fingertips, right? So you have to give time for your body to change as well. Same thing with dealing with chronic diseases. Like you said, for diabetes, it's 15 years in the making before you even get diagnosed, you're diabetic. And that is this 15 years of bad habits and bad lifestyle choices. You can reverse it in most cases, like you said, but you have to give your body time to change back to the default mode 
where it's supposed to be, you know, working efficiently and healthily. Fantastic explanation. I, I love using exercise as, a, as an example for a lot of these because it's really re- relatable. And just to add on top of that, something that I tell people like, how do you know when enough exercise is the right amount, hormesis, right, versus too much? I always say, do you feel more ener- energized after a workout? Do you feel like pumped up or do you feel wiped out for the rest of the day? If it's the latter, you probably apply too much stress. You got to taper it down. If you feel more pumped up and you recovered and like to your point, you could go back to the gym the next day. That's a good sweet spot. I've noticed a lot of people have issues with caffeine, especially caffeine in coffee. Now, don't get me wrong. I love myself a cup of quality coffee, but the truth is I've seen so many of my Keto Camp Academy students have a glucose spike from caffeine, knocking them out of fasting or creating some digestive issues, bloating, and most commonly, jitters and irritability. We know excessive caffeine and caffeine sensitivity can cause adrenal problems, which has a lot of negative effects. It makes you more dependent on the caffeine and it puts you in this sympathetic fight or flight state. And for a lot of people, that is problematic. Everyday dose solves the problem of regular coffee while drastically building on its benefits with added supplements. What I love about everyday dose, it's low acidity, cold extracted coffee, and a micro dose of caffeine blended with collagen protein, functional mushrooms, and nootropics, which will improve your focus, your energy, and your immunity. I just feel different in a really good way when I have everyday dose versus regular coffee. And I want you to experience the same. So if you want to check out Everyday Dose, head over to everydaydose.com Ben and use the coupon code KETOCAMP. You're going to get an extra five on the go dose travel pack to take with you anywhere you go. I take these travel packs with me and it is a game changer because when I'm traveling, it's hard to find, first of all, a clean cup of coffee, but almost impossible to find coffee with these functional ingredients. So head over to everydaydose.com slash ketocamp. Use ketocamp to get your bonus gift or click the link in the podcast notes down below. And I want to relate the conversation to the mitochondria and something we were talking about offline that I want to bring on to the podcast, which is a mitochondrial uncoupling. And I'm going to just I'm going to just explain it real quick to maybe somebody listening who doesn't understand it yet and then I'll let you dive deeper into your thoughts on it. So when we think about energy production and we think about the mitochondria this factory within ourselves, I think it's always fascinating that that I believe in God. So I'm going to use the word God, but anybody could replace that word. The way we were created by God and the cells in our body that are most required for survival are the cells that have the most mitochondria, showing you the importance of the mitochondria, right? There's different parts of the brain that are very active that have over a million mitochondria in a single cell. The heart, like you were saying earlier, has thousands of thousands of mitochondria. Ovaries have about 100,000 in an ovary cell. Reproduction, brain focusing, hunting your prey, the heart pumping, the eyeballs are high in mitochondria. And then some other cells that are not as important have you know, a few hundred. So the mitochondria have dual roles. It produces energy. It's also this surveillance system to determine wartime metabolism or peacetime metabolism, either ramp up energy or shut it down depending on your stress, hormesis. But we'll talk about the energy part related to keto. The reason keto, one of the reasons why ketones and ketogenic lifestyle work so well is because of the the communication between these ketone metabolites and what they do to create more energy within those cells. So when we look at the electron transport chain, we see that ketones will create about 400% more ATP than a glucose molecule. And that's not because that, the reason I should say is because of this mitogenesis that's occurring. It's the creation of new mitochondria. But the problem that people see here is, okay, if the more mitochondria we create means the more ATP we create, which sounds good, but then that means there's going to be more waste products because the more energy you burn, the more smoke, if you will. So there's more waste products. So how is that good? Well, that's where this mitochondrial uncoupling process comes in. As a survival mechanism, you have these release valves that start to release any free radicals to a certain point that it could be bad. So pick up where I just left off, share about that mitochondrial uncoupling and that sweet spot. And then I want to know your thoughts. I asked you offline, but this happens with endogenous ketone production. Do you think this will happen also with exogenous ketone production or consumption? Great question. And I think it's a great area to dive into as well, because this is very relevant in both healthy 
and disease population, right? The reason why we started talking about uncoupling, we're talking about wastage of energy, it usually is associated or attributed to a dysfunction in the mitochondrial system or a dysfunction in the respiration, mitochondrial respiration. And this is usually common within the diseased population. So when we're talking about metabolic diseases, such as diabetes, again, you know, easy, easy example here, um, we see metabolic inflexibility. We see the inability for it to switch over from fatty acid to glucose or from glucose back to fatty acid whenever needed. So when there is dysfunction, they're bound to be deficiency and, and they're bound to be wastage of energy. And we of, often see an increase in uncoupling protein, UCP. In the heart, it's UCP3. Um, there are quite a few of them, UCP1, 2, 3. Uh, in the heart, especially UCP3 has been seen to be upregulated with diabetes. So, you know, then people straight away think it, it's a similar mindset where they think it's a one way street where, oh, Inflammation increase in one disease, so inflammation must be bad. So that is a correlation. It's a biomarker to tell us more about, you know, to give us more information about the condition. It does not necessarily mean that that is definitely a bad thing, right? So same thing here. Um, there is increasing uncoupling and there is increase in energy wastage, but in a healthy person, right, doing some form of activity or even being on a ketogenic diet or having exogenous ketones, you may, you may see an increase in UCP. But then the question comes, is that how much is too much? And is it just a minor increase itself? It's already a bad thing? Not necessarily. And I think I want your listeners to, to understand this, right? It's the Goldilocks zone again, where no researchers so far can put an exact threshold point where an increase in uncoupling, you know, put a value on it and say this is a definite bad and anything less is good. No researcher has done that, but also no researcher can actually point out for sure that any increase is bad. So what I believe is that small increase caused by ketones, or even to a certain extent, maybe some exercise activity, physical activity may increase that, it actually is good for you. So, you know, same thing with, for example, cortisol, you know, stress hormone, right? Everyone thinks that it's the bad, you know, the culprit, the bad guy, right? But you need cortisol to function, right? You need fight or flight reaction, right? You need, you need that, that level of cortisol. You need those are essentially signals for your body to react and respond to the right stimulus. So the goal here is not to shut down whatever that is related to a chronic disease or whatever that's related to a disease at all. It's to be able to train your body to respond to certain stimulus and certain conditions effectively and optimally, and then shut it down when you don't need it. Because the problem is not shutting it down at all and you leave it on, you know, you leave the, the, the tap on at the entire time, you're going to flood your apartment, right? But do you need the tap? Yes. Right? You just need to turn it off when you're not using it. So it's as simple as that. So I hope that sort of explains where I see homesis and where I see, you know, uncoupling and, and waste energy wastages because it's easy to argue a black and white in science uh, because everyone thinks it's facts, science is facts, so it's easy to say black and white. But in metabolism, especially in vivo, in a live person, all the pathways are interconnected and balanced with each other. It's homeostasis. It's always you turn up one thing, the other thing will turn down in order to balance it. So you can't see it unilaterally. You can't see it linearly because it will affect one thing after another and it might have a butterfly effect as well. So, Yeah, absolutely. Then you explained that very well and you made the case for keto flexing. So thank you, which is my approach of cyclical ketosis, right? Going in and out. <laughs> that's, that's one of the many reasons why I believe in keto flexing and not long-term ketosis. Question, when I asked you offline if exogenous ketones would create the same coupling, you said 
beta hydroxybutyrate is beta hydroxybutyrate. So you're hypothesizing that it will, but is there a way to actually like study it? Is that something that you might do in the future to see if that actually is the case? Um, at the moment, we haven't got any plans to look at specifically uncoupling and UCP per se. But what I do believe, as I said earlier, is that whether it's endogenous or exogenous ketones, it's essentially the same molecule. It's BHB. So it's like you asking me, is taking in glucose, you know, C6H12O6 exogenously versus glucose that you create via gluconeogenesis. It's the same thing, right? So to that extent, I think if you see a certain effect in endogenous ketones, especially with ketogenic diet, I could argue the same effect could potentially be brought about by exogenous ketones. Now, the only difference here I want to point out is that one, the exogenous ketone effect is obviously not as long-lasting as endogenous ketones because obviously if you're on ketogenic diet, you probably be on a longer period of ketosis or in a ketotic state compared to um, taking in exogenous ketones. And the second point I want to make is that endogenous ketone production is in the absence of any glucose or any glycogen stores, whereas exogenous ketones you can take with the presence of any other substrates that is available in the body. Now, the interaction of these different substrates may very well cause, may very well create some difference in energy production, wastage, and salvaging as well. So that Difference is just a pure hypothesis here. I would um, foresee some form of difference just because of the presence of another substrate that is available. Yeah, I would hypothesize the same. And that just makes the point that you also want to not just take exogenous ketones, but you want to combine that with doing the work, eating the right foods, low insulin foods. It's the magic in both the, the exogenous ketones. And I think you would agree, they're not shortcuts for you doing the work. Make sure you're actually changing your lifestyle behaviors. Could you add to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I What I usually start a podcast, people ask, oh, what are ketones? Um, and usually I say, well, ketones is the same as other substrates like glucose, fats, or proteins. It is a fuel for you to create energy. It takes, you know, the mitochondria takes up the ketones and cleave it and form acetyl-CoA, drop it into Krebs cycle, go through the oxidative phosphorylation pathway and create ATP. So in that sense, it is still calories. It is still a substrate. So having too much of it, you will still have calorie surplus. And if you're not doing activity, you're not going to lose weight. If you, The goal is losing weight. Um, it may have a slight appetite suppression effect, but that it also depends on your activity, on your daily energy expenditure, on um, a lot of things that is, you know, the rest of your 24 hours, you know, because you eat for, you know, maybe a total of about two, three hours out of that 24 hours. And then the rest of the, the activity or the rest of the 24 hours is, is, is what matters. What you do is what matters. I love that. So you said appetite suppression. I want to talk about that a little bit. We know that... Um, BHB helps with cholecystokinin, and cholecystokinin is helping you with satiety. Now, is there research on exogenous ketones specifically helping with leptin resistance or leptin levels? There is a study so far using ketone ester that looked at ghrelin level. So ghrelin is the hunger hormone. It decreases ghrelin. Um, it has shown that. We are currently in discussion with a university to run a study of our own using ketone IQ and looking specifically in appetite suppression, as well as extending that ghrelin paper by looking at uh, potentially calorie intake as well. Interesting. Okay, cool. Well, when that comes out, we'll, uh, we'll hear about that. Yeah. Um, I, I believe there is one paper looking at leptin sensitivity um, with regards to R13-butanol, which is very relevant to ketone IQ because the ghrelin paper was on ketone ester. And I don't know if you want to go into you know, the difference between ketone IQ and ketone ester and all the other exogenous ketones. Um, I, can, I can sort of briefly run that through if you want. 
Yeah, well, well, we we Michael went through that in detail, but I think not everybody watching and listening probably saw that yet. So if you could do it like in a brief, like a couple of uh, minutes, yeah, share that. That'll be great. Yeah, sure. So so ketone ester, which is the more common um, exogenous ketone out there, apart from salts, um, is a form of ketone where it's beta hydroxybutyrate esterified with butane diol. And, and that's why it's called ketone ester because of the ester bond. Uh, ketone IQ, what we have at HVMN is essentially half of that. We have R13-butendiol, um, so we don't have the BHB, but the R13-butendiol goes directly into your liver, gets converted in BHB and released into blood. And that's why you see an increase in blood BHB within half an hour, and it will start um, elevating uh, you know, from half an hour on till two, three hours. It should peak around that time and then it will go down depending on your activity and your fat state and everything. So that's that's the difference. And I think there is a paper that specifically, look, uh, uh, that specifically looked at leptin sensitivity being improved with R13-butindiol, but I think they are still um, lacking some data to draw a conclusive remark on the effect of R13-butindiol on leptin. So hopefully our study will cover all of that. We'll look at leptin, ghrelin, appetite, um, you know, subjective feel, calorie intake. So very exciting about that. Yeah, yeah, that's very exciting. And I want to get into a couple of papers you published. But before we get there, uh, I'm going to share with you, Lat, how I personally use this. And when I say use this, I mean recommend it to my students in my academy. And then I want to hear your feedback and maybe give me some coaching or some changes that might you might give me or anything you want to add to how I teach it to my students. So uh, first and foremost, I always tell them, make sure you use a quality company that does it the right way. Mine go-to is HVMN. And then secondly, I tell them this, this does not substitute doing the work. Uh, ideally, I want to teach them to be metabolically flexible with endogenous ketone production. But if we were going to use exogenous, the way that I would use it would be if you're struggling with that adaptation period and you might you know, be concerned with like keto flu or just that transition that might create some symptoms, you know, take some of this as you make the transition, number one. I also will say if you're struggling with cravings in that first couple of weeks because you're still sugar burning and you're struggling with the, the, the cravings, then take some, some uh, exogenous ketones to help with the cravings. And then if you've already been in ketosis for a while, you're already fat adapted, keto adapted, and you just want to perform, like cognitively, cognitively perform well, if you're going to ask for a raise or speak on stage or be on a podcast, take it before that. And then the fourth uh, reason I ask, I tell them to take it is for exercise, like especially for those who um, do carnivore and experiment with like zero carbs, exercise could be tough for them, especially in the first few weeks. So I tell them to add this in before their basketball or their training or whatever it is as a way to help them overcome that hump. So I want to hear your feedback and what would you add to that or anything you would change? That was a very, 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 very good explanation. Is there any way I can get that, by the way? <laughs> Is there any way I can get that list? The way the way you explained that it was very well explained. Um, it's very much, you know, very similar, you know, on brand with what we tell our customers oh, cool. as well. That's good. And what I tell people as a scientist, as a scientist in metabolism and physiology, is that if you are doing ketogenic diet to lose weight or for whatever other reason, and it works for you, then you know, and then you argue, why would I take exogenous ketones when I have my endogenous ketones already? And the answer is, you don't need it right? If it works for you already, you don't need it. But if there are any occasions where you say you have to go out, have a birthday party, have a piece of cake, and you feel harder to get in, get back into ketosis, that's where exogenous ketones come in, comes in. It's essentially a convenience tool for you to get back into ketosis. So as far as performance go, so in two use cases here, one is pre-workout acute use, and the other one is recovery. I'll talk about the first one first. Pre-workout use is essentially adding in, and this, this, by the way, you have to add in glucose for optimal performance because you are essentially adding two different fuels. If you think about hybrid cars, you are having glucose as your uh, source of energy, but you're also adding in ketone as your source of energy. And we have seen in studies that it, it does improve uh, performance to a certain extent, as well as having glycogen sparing effect. So in terms of post-workout recovery, we have seen an even starker um, difference where people or athletes who have been given protein, carbs, and ketones after workout and before sleep. So they would take uh, one 
two to three doses per day. And after three weeks, they saw an improvement of 15% in work output. And that is also accompanied by an increase in calorie intake as well, which is very, very weird because we know that ketones to a certain extent suppress appetite. But when you couple it with really intense training and proper nutrition, it actually increases calorie intake. So in that sense, I believe ketone is not just a one-way street. It's not a switch on or off. Instead, it's just priming your body to react to the stimulus that you're providing your body in the most optimal sense. So i.e. if you are fasting and you are slowing down the systems in your body and your body is telling it to you know, conserve all the energy and resources, you take ketones, it sort of suppresses the appetite. But if you are already doing very intense exercise and training, your body says it needs to recover because it knows the next day you're going to have to go through this bout of exercise again. Therefore, let's ramp up your recovery and increase your appetite so that you can have enough building blocks to um, aid with the recovery. So that's that's what I believe what ketone does and, and to metabolism, to performance, as well as to... Um, therapeutic areas in a certain sense as well, because we have seen it, it, you know, people say ketones are anti-inflammatory, antioxidants sort of properties, but there is one study that when bacterial toxins are involved or introduced, they saw an increase in inflammation in the ketone culture, in the culture with ketones. And that just tells me that ketone essentially equip your body to react um, more optimally, uh, you know, based on what you're introduced to. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And, and you have a paper that talks a lot about the recovery assets of uh, exogenous ketones. Is that, is that paper show those stats you just mentioned? Or is it a different paper you were referencing? Yep. That paper, that paper did summarize all those um, different publications to date as to why we think ketones are good for recovery. We looked at glycogen resynthesis. We looked at mTOR activation. So when given protein, carbs, and ketones, um, they saw a specific leucine-mediated mTOR pathway activation, which aids um, protein synthesis. And we also looked at the paper that I just mentioned in athletes for three weeks, and they measured the work output. They improved 15% um, work output um, after given ketone as a post-exercise uh, nutritional strategy. Did you just say that the exogenous ketones helped with mTOR activation post-workout? Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, when given protein, carbs, and ketones, uh, they look at in vitro, they look at the cells, and they measured an improved or increased activation of leucine-mediated mTOR uh, pathway. Huh. Yeah, and, and for those, you know, when mTOR is anabolic, you know, it's growth and um, in spurts could be very healing, especially with exercise, but too much mTOR, not good. Uh, opposite of mTOR is autophagy, which is catabolic and repairing, but too much of that is not good. It's the Goldilocks effect, right? So that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. Because I was going to add as well, because with regards to mTOR, it's mTOR does so many things as well. So it's like when people latch onto the word mTOR and they run with it, I'm like always very, very cautious because I'm like, you have to look at so many aspects of mTOR as well, because some people have seen a downregulation of mTOR in longevity studies, in aging, because it's good for you, because essentially it's autophagy, it's renewal, it's recovery. And people also say ketones may be good for longevity and aging. How does that work when we have seen an activation of mTOR following exercise and ketones, right? Same thing here, right? If you are, same thing with appetite suppression that I mentioned earlier, Given the right conditions, it suppresses appetite. And given the right stimulus, it actually increases appetite. Given the right stimulus, it increases mTOR activation. But if you use it in the right way, it should you know, align to the goal and, and the pathway activation or deactivation as you see fit or as the body sees fit. Yeah, so interesting. Hey, Keto Camper, I want to just pause for a second and tell you about my favorite drink for metabolic health. On this podcast, we talk about the importance of metabolic health, metabolic flexibility. Well, this is called good idea, and it is a great idea if you are trying to reduce blood sugar and keep your insulin levels in a healthy range. It has zero calories, zero sweeteners, 
and none of the junk ingredients, and it tastes like a lightly sparkling water. I call it a functional sparkling water because it has been clinically tested and shown to reduce blood sugar spikes after a meal. It contains a blend of amino acids and chromium piclinate. Together, they slow gastric emptying and increase insulin sensitivity, allowing a steady release of glucose in the bloodstream where it can be transferred into the cells for fuel. It also contains zinc and potassium as an added benefit. They hooked you all up with a special coupon code. So all you need to do is head over to goodidea.us and apply the coupon code BEN, that is B-E-N, at checkout at goodidea.us. I'm going to drop that link in the podcast notes along with the coupon code. All right, let's get back to this episode. I do want to talk about your your paper about uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, which you just shared with me offline. So what did you find with that paper? So traumatic brain injury, you know, we we know that... So essentially what we have done with that paper is that we went in, we first looked at metabolism of a normal healthy brain. And then we looked at the metabolism of a brain that has gone through traumatic brain injury. We looked at what sort of metabolic dysfunction that follows a traumatic brain injury. And then we further explore how can ketones and lactate be a potential intervention or therapeutic intervention to treat traumatic brain injury. And then we concluded that by looking at the similarity between traumatic brain injury and Alzheimer's diseases or any sort of cognitive impairment disease that could potentially be also affected by ketones in similar ways. That is the structure where we, how we wrote the paper. So in terms of looking at the metabolism of the brain after traumatic brain injury, acutely speaking, within 48 hours, a lot of studies have shown a hypermetabolism of glucose. So the brain tends to really upregulate glucose intake into the cells, into the neurons. Some researchers say that they need the glucose for energy to just in general, just repair and generate energy for function. But then another group of research say that it's actually not being funneled through glycolysis and Krebs cycle and oxidative phosphorylation, but instead is being shunted towards pentose phosphate pathway that is primarily used for um, repair and mitigation of the damage. So either way, they both agree that there is a hypermetabolism of glucose. So that's one, right? So what happens if your body, one, doesn't have enough glucose or your um, brain has insulin resistance, therefore it can't take up as much glucose as it needs, or three, there is a saturation factor of glucose transporters because we know that giving so much glucose does not necessarily mean that the brain will take all of it because there is a point where glucose transporters will reach saturation point where your glucose would just float around and it's not entering the cell. Therefore, the damage is still going to occur from the lack of energy, deficiency of energy, or from the lack of substrates being used for mitigation. And this is where ketones may come in handy because you are providing a substrate that utilizes a different transporter, an MCT, monocarboxylase transporter, transporter. And that way, even if glucose is at saturation or it's not being taken up because of X, Y, Z reason, insulin resistance or whatever, you have ketones coming in and give the brain another option to produce energy. So you solve that energy deficiency problem. And then after that, you know, you can still use the glucose for pentose phosphate pathway if that is the case. And you can keep using the ketones for uh, metabolism because either way, your brain needs to keep working. So that's, that's acute phase. The chronic phase, what we have seen from, you know, weeks to months after the TBI is a hypometabolism of glucose. For some reason, the brain doesn't metabolize glucose as efficiently after a traumatic brain injury. And this is very similar to Alzheimer's as well. Is it because when they get the injury, it's sucking so much glucose, then it becomes resistant to it, similar to insulin resistance? Is that what's happening? That could be. Um, no one really knows. Um, I, I looked at so many papers, they didn't really go in detail in 
as to what is the mechanism of action, why the brain goes into hypometabolism of glucose. Uh, I reckon, you know, speaking to a lot of like this neuro, like I'm looking forward to doing more podcasts with, you know, neurologists and neuroscientists to find out more about this because, you know, through and through my, my training has always been in cardiovascular disease and, and cardiology. So learning about the brain is something very new for me. And it's, it's very fascinating as well, because I know that whatever disease that's, that is associated with the brain, two same people with the same symptoms, you treat it the same way, you may get a complete different outcome. Whereas the other organs in the body, it's pretty much you can standardize the treatment and you'll get the, the expected outcome. So that's how fascinating our brain is. Yeah. If you look at psychology, psychiatry treatment, that's why psychiatrists, uh, psychiatry treatment is so difficult because, you know, same symptoms, different person may behave differently if, if you give the same treatment. So back to the hypometabolism. So this is what we have seen in Alzheimer's as well. And that's why they coined, you know, the term type three diabetes for Alzheimer's, because they saw a dysfunction in glucose metabolism in the brain for Alzheimer's. So that's how we sort of relate between TBI and Alzheimer's. And because of that, you know, again, ketones is a different group of substrate that could potentially sub supply the brain with energy. And this is also what I would envision being useful because if the ketones can one, solve the energy deficiency problem, and two, also provide some form of signaling benefit that we have seen in papers or in studies that, that increases um, brain network stability as you age. So people who have been put on ketogenic diet for a week versus a, a one dose of ketonester, they saw an improvement and increase in brain network stability after being in a functional MRI. And they saw you know, the, an increased interaction between the brain regions just from that one dose of exogenous ketones or uh, you know, on keto diet for a week. So just see how powerful that is um, to treat TBI, to treat people who have gone through injury and, and has manifested a deficiency and dysfunction in metabolism in the brain. So interesting. What type of exogenous ketones do they use in those studies? They use ketone, a ketone ester. An ester, okay. And yeah. interesting. So ketone ester is by far the most, uh, the most studied form of ketone ester. One, because it does raise your blood ketone levels very rapidly, up to three to five millimolar uh, within half an hour. And two, because it has been around for a while. The problem with ketone ester is one, it tastes very bad. It tastes very bitter. Um, and two, it is quite on the pricey end to buy it. So for especially for therapeutic ends, for performance, it's perfectly fine because people just use it one-off and use it during race or dur during training. That's fine. But for therapeutic users where people might have to use it on a daily basis may become very costly. Um, and that's how and why we came, you know, to produce ketone IQ. And another reason for ketone ester uh, that may provide some form of negative uh, impact is that some papers actually published later, um, I think they, they got published last year, on the diminishing oxidation rate when you go from two millimolar to four millimolar of uh, beta hydroxybutyrate in the blood. So when you go from zero to two, you get obviously a, a huge increase in oxidation rate of, of ketones in the in the body. But then when you go from two to four, the increase gets you know gets much smaller. And then also uh, other papers show that when you are fed and not fasted. So some papers showed improvement in performance using ketone ester when fasted. And then when another group repeated it when fed, they didn't see any difference. But then the same group repeated the fat experiment with bicarbonate, it showed an improvement of 5%. Now, why bicarbonate, you would say? Because they saw that when taking ketone ester, because the sharp spike in blood BHB and BHB is beta hydroxybutyric acid. It's acid, therefore it's decreasing the pH in blood. And by decreasing pH in the blood, it increases acidity. You'll feel like you're working out harder. So you have a much higher rate of perceived exertion, but you don't get the, the benefit. You just, they just basically felt, oh, it's much harder for me to do this. Um, I'm increasing my heart rate, 
because I'm, you know, trying my best to exhale so that I can eliminate all this carbon dioxide from this acidity. And therefore, uh, it, it just makes it harder without the, the, the performance benefits. So by adding bicarbonate, they actually saw an improvement. So good thing about ketone IQ is that it goes up slowly without having that spike of blood BHB. Um, some people might argue, yeah, but I, I, if I want, you know, up to three millimolar to five millimolar, then yeah, that's true. Ketone IQ does not spike, does not go up to that high, even with uh, high dose. So it really depends on what use cases. And, and that's the whole point of us speaking like this so that we can impart the knowledge and information to everyone so that you can choose what exogenous ketone that fits your use cases um, the best, you know, be it price, be it taste, be it efficacy, safety, you know, and know the difference between drinkable like ketone esters and ketone IQ versus um, ketone salt versus MCT. Those are the information that I usually talk about. Yeah, you, know, you explained it very well. And Michael did a good job too when we interviewed him. I know the goals for HVMN are going to be get ketone IQ to every NFL team for concussions. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. Get it out to Elon Musk for the people going astronauts. out to space, the astronauts. Yeah. yeah. And then have a dispenser in every Tesla <laughs> to dispense ketone IQ. Yeah, are- let's do it. Let's do it. Let's manifest that. So anybody who's listening or watching who has any connection to the NFL or Elon Musk or Tesla, let's share this episode with them because they could benefit from HVMN. HVMN. We are currently talking to a few NFL teams as well, and they're very interested to use um, ketone. Oh, IQ. that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. But they are, we're looking at apply, uh, potentially applying for a grant as well um, with collaboration with um, the Naval Health Research Center to look at using ketone IQ for uh, TBI in the military. Um, hopefully, we'll find out more end of the year. Um, and then uh, another grant that is upcoming is also around sleep um, for the military. So uh, potentially decreasing sleep time, increasing wake time, and also keeping people productive during those week times. Hmm. That's so cool. You know, Creating superhumans. Yeah, right. We need that. <laughs> and, and speaking of sleep, you gave me a tip. So for those who are not aware, I've been, I've been using your product, Yon, which is your sleep supplement. It has magnesium glycinate, 250 milligrams. It has L-glycine, 500 milligrams, L-theanine, 100 milligrams, and low-dose melatonin, one milligram. So I've been taking that an hour before bed. I also am a big fan, uh, lat, of uh, high-dose melatonin. So on top of that, I add like 60 milligrams of melatonin, sometimes 200 milligrams suppository melatonin as well. Um, but you said to add ketone IQ, your exogenous ketone, to that um, Yon product. Ex- share why you recommended that for me. So what, uh, you know, remember the, the earlier um, part of, of our conversation, I talked about the recovery paper, the overreaching paper that saw after three weeks, there's improvement of 15% of work output. So that to me, you know, because the protocol there is, a dose of ketone after workout and a dose of ketone before sleep. So that was where I got my idea from. So I've been using it for recovery for post-workout and before sleep um, for a few months now. And I saw an improvement in, in my sleep quality. And then obviously, you know, I know about yawn and I have been taking yawn before, but I never thought about combining them. But then after looking at the ingredients, you know, there is melatonin, there is L-theanine, which is relaxation. Ketone is also known to be endolytic to a certain effect. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it sort of helps relaxation. And I think a lot of effect that comes with the um, ketone IQ in terms of mental clarity and mental focus is as much as you are mentally active, but part of it is also how relaxed you are. Because I feel more relaxed and therefore, I can be more focused, and therefore, I can speak fluently in a podcast, for example. So I was like, okay, let's combine them and see if there is synergistic effect. So far, I, I have no complaints. So that's why I mentioned it to you. And since you you, know, you say you're gonna, you, you have been using Yon, uh, and I was like, well, why don't you take Yon and Ketone right before sleep? Now, the key is do not take ketones more than half an hour before you go to bed, because some people say that they got all wired and they couldn't sleep. So take your yawn an hour before sleep or half an hour before and then take your ketones right before sleep. 
and experience that for yourself. Trial and error. Trial and error. Exactly. What you said in the beginning. And I have my aura ring, so I'll see what, what changes occur. And perfect, because tomorrow I'm running a 5K with, I'm doing a challenge with my Keto Camp Academy students. So hopefully that works tonight. And then I'm going to take some before the 5K and after the 5K for the recovery as well. <laughs> I, I will be looking forward to your feedback. Yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. And um, for those who are listening or watching on YouTube and you want to get some of uh, HVMN products, they have the ketone IQ, they have the Yawn product we just spoke of, they have a Rise product called uh, called Rise is a nootropic you I take in the morning, and you have a whole other set of products, MT MCT oils and etc. You guys were very gracious to give my audience a uh, 10% off coupon code. And that coupon code is keto camp, camp with the K, no space in between. If you go to hvmn.me slash keto camp, and then use that coupon code keto camp at checkout, you'll get 10% off your entire order. Or just click the link down below, we'll make it easier for you click the link use keto camp at checkout. So thank you lat for uh, offering that coupon code for my audience. Hello, thank you for hosting me and thank you for you know, helping spread all the knowledge and information to everyone. And, you know, one step closer to my goal of reaching the rest of the world. Amen. Let's do that. Let's do that. Where where else can uh, the keto campers go check out your work? I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Latmansor, L-A-T-T-M-A-N-S-O-R. So follow me on there. I post, um, started posting more reels and posting all my podcasts on there. Um, we go from, you know, performance to aging to metabolic diseases. And I think I'm going to have another podcast coming up to just talk about life philosophy. Oh, cool. And what I've learned from, you know, metabolism, physiology to applying it in, in life in general. I love that. And you also, HVMN has a great YouTube channel. You have some great videos on there that have really good production value and research. So we'll put a link down below for the YouTube channel and everything you mentioned as well. Lat, thank you for your tremendous research and all the cool things you're doing in the keto space, in the health space and metabolic health. Um, I'm grateful for you. I acknowledge you for what you're doing. You, uh, Jeffrey, Michael, the entire HVMN team, thank you so much for getting this research and making it convenient and available to us. And we are so grateful and thank you for coming on the show. I look forward to a round two with you. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it too. I hope you enjoyed that conversation geeking out on ketones. If you want to give the exogenous ketones a try, which is their ketone IQ or any of the products they have, head to hvmn.me slash ketocamp. Use ketocamp at checkout. We'll drop that link down below for you. You could also check out Lat on his social media platforms, which we'll put down below for you as well. If you didn't listen to my previous episodes with Michael Brent, who is a colleague of Dr. Lat, co-founder of HVMN, and Jeffrey Wu, who's also the co-founder of HVMN, you could find those podcast links down below, episode 398 and 108. Please consider sharing this episode with somebody you know. Please consider leaving the podcast a rating and review. I want to thank you for spending part of your day with us. We are super grateful. Thank you for continuously pressing play. We release new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So keep tuning in. We'll keep getting out this content to you. Have an amazing rest of your day, and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.